Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. We have a special episode this week. We're talking to Chris Mosier, the first trans athlete to represent Team USA, which he did in triathlon, and the first trans athlete to compete in the Olympic trials, which oddly he did in race walking. Chris and I talk about race walking and about what running meant to him when he was trying to sort out the questions he had around his gender identity, how he navigated triathlon and how he's trying to be a role model for other trans kids now. Chris is always interesting and thoughtful, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did, even though we had a few internet blipping out moments. Just stay with us and it'll be worth it, I promise, after this break. All right, this week we're talking to Chris Mosier, known for being the first trans athlete on Team USA, first uh, trans athlete to compete at the Olympic trials, I just found out, in race walking. How did you, I like, I got very fascinated by this and I want to find out how someone ends up race walking. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. It's so funny. People were like, was it harder for you to come out as a trans man or as a race walker? And I was like, definitely as a race walker. (laughs) Like, I was so, like, I just didn't tell anybody I was doing it. I, the way I got into it was that I have a friend who trains uh, at the same place that I train and was the number, is the number five race walker in the country. And He's always trying to recruit people for the sport. I did not know he asked everybody and like kind of gave this pitch to everybody. I just was the one who fell for it. You okay. know, he said like, have you ever thought about race walking? And I was like, yeah, no, absolutely not. And he said, well, I think you'd be really good at it. And I think that you may have a potential to go to the Olympic trials. And I was like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> so <You're> like, that's <laughs> really, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty easy sell, I guess, but Uh, He gave me some lessons. He worked with me and, you know, I did a couple of races and ended up in the Olympic trials last year. So it was a a very fun journey. It was one of the ones where the Olympic trials actually got to happen before kind of COVID shut everything down, right? Yeah, correct. And so really interestingly enough, no one actually qualified for the Olympics at that race um, just on time. And so it went to a point system. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very newcomer. I didn't think I'd actually make it to the Olympics, but going to the Olympic trials was just incredible. It was so awesome. I have so many more questions about race walking, but I suppose we'll talk about triathlon <laughs> in a second, but how does one practice race walking? How do you even learn? I mean, because the rules are you have to have one foot on the ground at all times, right? So one foot on the ground at all times by the human eye. So it's, you know, if you slow it down, people are definitely going faster than that. But also your front leg has to be straight knee until it's underneath your body. So your foot has to be under your hips before you can bend your knee. And that's the biggest difference between, you know, that running. It's funny because, so, you know, triathlon is my love and I I came into triathlon through running, but uh, to go into race walking, it sort of reminded me of getting into swimming when I first started tries in that, like, when I'm not, I don't have a swimming background. And I think any triathlete who does not have a swimming background can probably relate to me on this one of saying there are just so many things to think about when you are in the pool. So compared to running, you know, I can go out and run. I can think about anything. I can space out. I can, I wrote my wedding, my wedding vows when I was running, you know, like I'm a very good multitasker when I'm running. Uh, But for swimming and for race walking, it was like, there are so many technical points that make all the difference that I really had to be attentive to. So it was a, it was just a big challenge to to do it. I mean, yeah, you, you same like any other sport, you just practice a lot, right? So I was I was right. walking a lot, and for me, the biggest challenge was like I know I can run twice as fast, so so like slowing down and actually keeping the form and of walking and doing that, you know, was a was tough, but it was super fun to learn a new sport and to like be a beginner and a novice at something again. 
Uh, because I think when you are in a sport like triathlon for a decade or more, you know, we take a lot of things for granted. We take, mm-hmm. a, we, we take a lot of things for granted. And to have those experiences where I was showing up to a race and it was my first time there and I didn't know how it worked, you know, it gave me a lot of, a lot of perspective on how people feel coming to races now. And like, you know, my athletes who are first timers or, you know, want to do their first try, like the nervousness, the emotions, the process of, of that. So it was a really good reset for me. Yeah, yeah. And you were, I want to get this right. So you were the first trans athlete to compete in the Olympic trials in their like identified gender. But I was under the impression that there had been, we think, two trans athletes at the Olympics before from other countries. They just didn't come out. They weren't like public about it. Right. Is that, am I wrong about that? There are, there have been no out transgender athletes in the Olympics ever. Okay. Right. So, so that's, yeah. And right now we know that there's an athlete who came out after, uh, the, after Rio, who will mm-hmm. be going to Tokyo. And so they will definitely be the first trans athlete because um, they've already qualified. There's a Paralympian right. who's already qualified. Um, so we know that there will be at least two, if not more, in Tokyo, but never uh, anyone who's been out and open about their identity and, and then participating. Got it. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. Obviously, we'll get some more into that and everything, but there were lots of rules and, and speculation and that kind of thing. Um, but you mentioned that, uh, you know, learning to triathlon, finding running, opening. I know you played team sports as a kid and you kind of quit for a long time and then found running and then found triathlon later in college. What kind of drove you back to sports, you know? Yeah. So uh, while well, I stepped away from organized team sports in college, um, so I was a three sport all conference athlete in high school, volleyball, basketball, and softball, uh, actually despised running at that time, which is kind of funny in my story. Now, uh, when I made it to college, I wanted to play college basketball and then sort of realized that I didn't want to be on a women's team. Mm. But at that time I didn't have the language or the understanding about trans identity. I didn't know I was trans. And so I just like, all I knew was that deep in my soul, I did not want to be like on a team where they were saying, Hey, ladies, let's go. And, you know, that that became maybe the, you know, beginning of me really kind of investigating sort of what it meant for me to be identified in that way by other people. Because internally, I just have always sort of felt like me, I just always right. felt like, you know, like, this is just who I am. And I didn't know how to explain it to other people. And that was really the problem. It wasn't that I felt something was wrong in me. I thought something was wrong with the way people were talking to me and addressing me and what they were expecting of me. Uh, in college, I played co-ed sports. So any intramural thing that you could do, team sports, I was playing just so that, you know, in that, in that way, I didn't have to be identified as a woman. I didn't have to be on a women's team. Um, I didn't necessarily have to use locker rooms or restrooms. You just show up at the park and play. Um, you know, sport has always been a place where I felt most like myself. I felt like I even if people didn't really understand me in the rest of the world or in the classroom or out, outside of school, uh, when I was on a quarter of the field, you know, I was respected because we have a common goal and because that was my team, that was my family. Um, so sport has always served that purpose for me. And I think I really missed that when I moved away from competitive sports. I wanted to, to get back to that. So that's really where I started back in running, you know, after college, understanding that, uh, it's hard as an adult to be on a team, right? Like, like once you're after, once you're out of college, you're not going to be on like the well, I mean, rec teams and whatnot. But for me, it was just more like, what can I do that would be comfortable for me to do without having to maybe go to a locker room and without maybe having to go to a gym right now? And running served that purpose. And so I started mm-hmm. running and worked my way up through running. 
and then looking for a new challenge found triathlon. When you say that, like you didn't want to, you just something in you just didn't want to be on play on a women's team, a girls' team, be referred to as hey girls, like let's right, like I, I'm trying, like uh, obviously you know a lot of our listeners um, are not trans, and and are that what is that? What do you mean by that? You know why? Why do you did you not want to be uh, identified as a woman? It's just because it didn't fit. I mean, as a, as a kid, like I mean, it's like almost like if if my name is Chris and someone was calling me, you know, John, right. like or you know, or Sarah, like it just that's not my name. Like that's not who I am. And so that's exa- I mean, that's as simple as it was for me. Mm-hmm. It was like when I was a kid, I had a picture when I was like eight years old. I had a picture of a men's torso, like from a muscle magazine of like six pack abs and a flat chest. And like that, that was on my wall. Like that's my future. And that, like, you know, just think about that. I was, I was an eight year old white girl in, you know, like, like I'm sure my family was like, I don't understand, <laughs> but I don't get it. We didn't know any trans people and, you know, like right. but in, in my mind, while I didn't, I couldn't see a future for myself as the person that people told me I was supposed to be. I never pictured myself getting married and, and you know, like I, I just like couldn't picture myself having a job when I got older because I didn't see what I might look like, what I might be like, where I might, how I might be treated in the world. Hmm. Um, but there was something about that picture where I was like, just envision that's my body when I get older. Like I was, I was in karate at that time. So, you know, I, I was working out and I was like, just like a little a little kid, but that's what I thought of myself in the future. And so, you know, when, when puberty hit, when I was in school, when I wasn't fitting in with my peers, like the other girls in my class, I was just definitely not like them. There was this, this like, I don't know, it's like a lack of alignment with the expectations for me and the way that I thought that, that I most comfortably showed up in the world. And so the way it felt like anybody can kind of relate into this feeling of just like something is just not right. Right. Like, like mm-hmm. I just don't feel comfortable with people saying that. And, and it, the discomfort was that it just wasn't true. It just wasn't true. And I just didn't know how to say that to other people because like you said, I mean, the statistics are like 86% of Americans have never met a trans person in real life or believe oh, that really? they've never met a trans person in real life. So if you don't know someone like me, then you're not going to know how to talk to me, how to treat me, what I, you know, like it's, it's very easy to make a trans person into a monster or into a caricature if you've never met one in real life. I like the b- believe they've never because a lot. Like, right. I'm always like, you don't know, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so you started running because obviously running you can just do right. Like you can just go out and run. No one. And I know um, it took you a while though. After you, okay, you start running. You want to, and you were racing even as a woman. And then it took you a while, kind of to. I, I kind of hate the term transition because I know it comes with all these like connotations, but I, but to say like, no, actually I should be racing in the men's category um, because then it opens up all these questions, right? Like race directors are like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't, what do you like? How does this work? Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. So part of it was I was racing and I was racing and running because I wanted to reconnect with myself, like my most confident self, my most feeling like I belong the most happened in sports. So mm-hmm. I wanted to reconnect with that part of myself when I left college. But also, I liked what running did to my body, you know, and it, it made me feel comfortable in my body because, and, and like running and lifting weights, like as somebody who I, I couldn't at that time have told you that I was trans, 
But I knew that I felt more comfortable when people called me he than she. And I knew that that happened more if I, you know, like had a little bit wider shoulders or if my chest looked a little flatter in my t-shirt, like those were things that I would think about constantly. And so running and working out kind of helped me to, you know, quote unquote transition a little bit before I even knew that's what I was doing. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why I got back into it, but when I finally understood my identity, when I knew I was trans, I waited over a year and a half to, to say anything to a race director because I was terrified I'd lose sport. Right. I, you know, if you don't see someone like you doing what you want to do, it's hard to believe that there's space for you. You know, I think about that often in terms of the whiteness of triathlon, right? <laughs> like, like, yes. like, and it, it's, it's a similar journey of like saying like, you know, I didn't know many queer people at all, like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people in sport when I was thinking about coming out. I certainly didn't see any transgender men competing with men. And, you know, I thought like, I'm a competitive person. I don't want to give up all of, all of the things that I love about competing in sports in order to be my authentic self. But then at the same time, it came to a point where I was like, I can't not do this because right. sport is not full time, right? Like I need to be comfortable in the 95% of my life, you know, where I'm not in a race or in, in practice as well. And I mean, I think, I mean, we talked a little bit before you said that for the most part, your experience in triathlon was fairly welcoming, fairly open. Once you were like, no, actually, I, I am competing in the men's category. That is where I'm competing what was people's reactions? I mean, were they like, sure, come on? Or, or was there a lot of skepticism? Well, there's a lot of sexism in sport. And so I think that's like the, the first part that we need to frame up, right? So like the perspective is, first of all, I'm, an, I'm a case study of one, right? So like, mm-hmm. while I, I'm, I'm definitely not the first transgender athlete, and I know that folks have probably come before me, but I just didn't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was coming out to different race organizations, different national governing bodies, you know, the per, the reception that I got was largely a shrug of the shoulders and like, and okay, like, I we don't know what exactly to do with you, but I don't think this will be a problem because you were assigned female at birth. And, you know, I've actually had people say like, there's no way you'll be competitive against men. So just go ahead. Right. And so like, largely, I, I received the benefit of flying under the radar because of sexism in some ways. Right. And because I, I also transitioned into privilege. So I went from being an androgynous, you know, quote unquote woman or someone perceived as a woman uh, in a relationship with a woman who then transitioned into being perceived as a straight white man. And, you know, the amount of privilege that, like, that I received just in that transition that I was completely unprepared for was just like, I got the benefit of the doubt. And people were like, okay, whatever. Like it just, it, it hasn't, like it, it's been almost right. a non-issue. And I've certainly, I've had, I've had, you know, difficulties. I've had challenging situations. I've had discrimination. Uh, certainly never read the comments, you know, like um, I've had people at races say things, but largely my teammates, my competitors, even at races, you know, I've just been really welcomed and embraced by the community, which has been really cool. And there are always outliers of people, but I think, um, you know, Overwhelmingly, I had a very positive experience in transitioning, and then even making, you know, making teams and making all American. I mean, I just people have just kind of been like, okay, <laughs> just like really uh, a, a, an interesting uh, but nice sort of reaction. I think you, I mean you've lived out for a second, but I think I mean fundamentally, your 
your your point is that uh, it is kind of the well, you're not going to be competitive with men. A lot of the worry and the concern definitely kind of goes the other direction, where there's for various reasons, right? Like a lot of angst around um, men transitioning to women, um, and you're just, you're just like you just saying you didn't have that, right? Like that just wasn't an issue for you. Absolutely. My experience is completely different than any right. trans woman who just wants to participate in your local weekend race. Right. Like, you know, me representing our country internationally has been, you know, a fraction of the, the you know, issues that a trans woman faces on a Sunday in, in her local race. Uh, obviously, you ended up being competitive. Was it an issue? Um, so you have competed. I want to get these all right. You competed for Team USA and we mean this as a, at an age group level, not at mm-hmm. the like elite. But you competed for Team USA at an age group level in duathlon worlds, tri- like sprint uh, triathlon worlds, right? Um, six times is that is that right? Six times, yep. Uh, and now, obviously, you competed in the Olympic trials for race walking. And I guess like a lot of people are going to say that want to know how are you like more competitive now than you were, uh, you know, as a kid? Are you is the competitiveness comparative? How do you think it evens out? Yeah, I mean, so there are so many factors, right? And I think right. one thing that people love to do is to make some hard and fast rule about how competitive a trans person will be if they transition categories. And, you know, for me, I think people assumed I would be less competitive. For trans women, they assume they'll be more competitive. But, you know, by and large, first of all, we don't have a lot of trans athletes to study who, right. who can give you stats on this. Um, and so we're we're largely lacking information. Anecdotally, I'll say... Most trans people that I've seen who transition and continue to participate in sports are about the same level as their cisgender peers in the category with which they identify. Um, for me, you know, I felt like I was a competitive female athlete. And then when I transitioned to male, I wanted to be as competitive as I could be. So part of that is that I worked twice as hard. I worked my ass off, right? Because I knew that people would be looking at me and say, you don't belong here. And I huh. knew, you know, I felt like I had not just my own athleticism on the line, but also you know, I was doing it for my community. I want to be a great representation of trans people for every young kid to be able to look to me and say, no, I can continue to play sports and be who I know that I am. And, you know, other people's perceptions of me can or don't have to be my own limitations. You know, I, I felt that responsibility. So I worked extra hard, you know, and I think that, you know, when I first got into triathlon, I only competed for uh, maybe, maybe one season, maybe half a season in the female category. So I was very new to the sport. So I had a big learning curve too. Mm-hmm. And so of course my times got better. Of course my performance improved because I was new to the sport. So, you know, it wasn't like I dropped uh, minutes off my mile time. Like it's transition doesn't impact us like that. Right. So like, um, I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about what it means to medically transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I think that a lot of the factors are, the training and the fact that I just feel free to be myself. Now I would show up at races. I would show up at training and be spending so much time thinking about what other people thought about me, or if someone might say something to me Mm -hmm. and harass me about my gender or question me about something that that is exhausting to spend that much time worrying about how you're standing or, or if you said something that might out you or like, you know, those sort of moments questioning every interaction when I let all that go and just said, this is who I am and I'm, and you can like it or you can hate it. And I don't actually care because now I feel more comfortable. 
that was when everything started to change for me in terms of performance, in terms of the effort that I could put into my training and my racing and my relationships and how I showed up in the world. All of that improved when I just said, you know what, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Yeah. I've actually wondered that about some of the, I mean, the larger, bigger fights going on kind of at the international level about how much testosterone is too much and what quantify, like what kind of parameters there should be that maybe some people perform well just because they don't have to be stressed about all this anymore. They can just be themselves, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, that's such an interesting topic to bring up too, because I'm always like, you know, do you know your testosterone levels uh, no. by chance? I right. So like not, <laughs> I would say not a lot of cisgender people do, you know, the folks who do know it's because there was some sort of medical issue um, or, you know, if they're transitioning, then we know our levels, but otherwise it's not something that athletes know. And there's such a wide range for both cisgender women and cisgender men uh, and, and an overlap between the two categories. And so I think that's important to say, like, you know, there's been so much focus on testosterone as, uh, as the it factor for performance, but like, 95% of athletes don't know their testosterone levels and, you know, testosterone doesn't play sports. <laughs> so like to, to undermine your training and your performance, you know, simply by an assumption about how much tea you might have in your body is a, is a real, um, it's a real slight to you. And I think that's unfair. There's also, I mean, not to get like super in the weeds of this whole, there's a lot of interesting research around natural testosterone levels um, versus like, obviously like doping causes performance enhancement but when they've measured testosterone levels you're naturally occurring and performance they don't really correlate like it's not like the people with higher actually do better but if you boost it artificially then yeah you do better like yeah that's a so there's like there's like different top parts here that are actually really complicated and yeah, there are certainly some professional cyclists who have kind of screwed up the conversation in terms of, of transgender athletes. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. But, you know, like me taking testosterone, I, I get, uh, you know, I'm in the international testing pool. I'm, I'm submit my levels to USADA and WADA. You know, I'm, I'm regulated and I'm within the range that cisgender men are in. Um, I did not hulk out. You can see me. I don't think this is a video podcast, right? So like, <laughs> but anybody can go to my Instagram. I'm not like, I didn't beef out. I didn't like, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm largely the same, you know, body type and size that I was before I started taking testosterone. And I've been on it for 11 years now. Like it's been a long time. So um, hmm. it's not, it's not a magic substance. You're like for better and worse, whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, like you kind of said there, like you started running and, and, and I would imagine coming over to triathlon from running would be a lot more emotionally fraught because running, like you can wear baggy clothes, you can do what I like people kind of don't pay, but triathlon has changing tents and swimming and lots of spandex, right? Like it feels like a lot more of a minefield for somebody kind of coming into. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want a, a funny story about uh, changing tents? <laughs> well, I mean, I think like, this is like something that, you know, I heard about changing tents prior to my first Ironman race, which was my first race as male. And so I was very excited to like, be able to fully show up as myself. And mm -hmm. it was the first race that I ran a section like from the water to the changing tent without my shirt on because I had just had top surgery. So like, I felt the most like myself I had ever felt like in any race. And I had asked the day before because some of my teammates told me about the changing tent. I just like didn't, I didn't put it together of what it was. And I was like, so are there individual like stalls in there or what? And one of the volunteers the night before told me, yeah, there are individual stalls. So I'm expecting to like go into like 
you know, it's like a H and M changing room with like, right. <laughs> with like doors and or curtains or something. And I walked in and I was like, Oh, I was drastically unprepared for this. <laughs> it's <was> just, <laughs> um, you know, it's certainly uh, something I had not walked through in my mind of uh, of the race beforehand. And you know, I figured out it was easy for me to navigate because I had been in locker rooms before, and it was not a problem. But uh, you know, it was certainly unexpected. The body consciousness of triathlon, I think, was a challenge for better and worse for me. More than that, I think swimming was my hardest part. Not only because I was new to swimming, but because you know, for my gym to get to the pool, you had to go through one of two locker rooms, right? And so like initially when I started, I was still competing in the women's category. Uh, I am, I was very androgynous, masculine presenting prior, prior to transition. So going into those spaces in a women's room was really contentious for me. Uh, and then to change into a women's swimsuit and have to go through that you know, there was like this question mark of like, you don't belong here. And then like, oh, wait a second, actually, like, my bad, you know, You're like, maybe then, you do, maybe like, you get right. <laughs> you know, like getting in and out of that room was really problematic. And then when I had top surgery and, and felt comfortable using men's spaces, I uh, started my medical transition, you know, then there was a fear factor going into those spaces too, because they were unexpected. I didn't know what it'd be like. I didn't know if I'd be safe. And so swimming became that point of like, both in terms of my body presentation at the pool. And once you're in the water, no one cares, right? But like for me, getting to the water was the hardest part. And then, you know, in racing as well with the, with the spandex. But I think I, it challenged me to think about my body and what other people thought about my body in different ways. Do you think triathlon and running to a degree then helped you re- recognize like who you were in your identity or did it, or was it, or was it a challenge, right? Or did it present more obstacles? Swimming was an obstacle, but right. I think largely, you know, on the whole, it helped me greatly because of the fact that when I'm in competition, I felt like I could fully be myself. And I think I'm my best self when I'm training for something, when I'm when I have that purpose and when I'm connecting with my body and myself in that way. So I think it was, you know, largely helped me. And like I said, you know, running was my therapy. I could think mm-hmm. about all of the things uh, that that were related to my transition and how I wanted to show up in the world and issues that I had faced, I could think about that while, while training. And so I think I just channeled that energy into training more and doing more and trying to be better so that I could sort of offset some of those challenges that I was really feeling uh, related to the uniforms. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, now, obviously, or maybe this is an obvious everyone, but I mean, you're sponsored by Nike, you like coach, you train. I, I'm not... I don't know, you know, there's a whole lot, like, I'm not sure if you are a professional or if you're essentially like live the pro lifestyle, but you, that is what you do, right? Like you, you are a full-time athlete pretty much, right? Yeah. Full-time athlete and advocate. And, you know, I think this is the the part that is really important to me is that like, I think sport is a vehicle for social change. And I think that so many great moments in history have started from movements that happened in sport. And I truly believe mm-hmm. that the acceptance of transgender people can start in sport and, and it can accelerate conversations outside of sport by simply by me being present and me being visible. And so, you know, my, my goal in, in using sport is to have that platform. I mean, being sponsored by Nike is an incredible platform. Being affiliated with Team USA is, a, is an incredible platform. And that allows me opportunities to talk about things like inclusion for LGBTQ plus people, uh, to be a visible role model for young transgender people, 
and to help accelerate that social change that I want to see in the world. Does it ever impact your performance though? Like I know that there are, well, there are, there are, there are definitely like trans athletes out there who are not open because they don't want to deal with the hate and the, and the, 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 you know, the death threats, the everything they just can't like, and it would impact their athletic performance to be out. Right. Yeah. Does it ever then impact your performance to be so vocal? Oh, sure. I mean, I had, uh, there was a national championship race that happened in North Carolina when they had just passed their bathroom bill HB2. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to go to this state where if I need to use the restroom and the gas station, I might potentially be harassed or kicked out or worse. So, you know, I've, I've, I had, I've had this fear of, of being open sometimes. At that race, actually, somebody came up and tapped me on the back and was like, hey, are you Chris Mosier? And I jumped. Like, I, I was terrified. And it, it ended up being somebody who had read an article in USA Today about me, who, like, about me being afraid of going to, to North Carolina and, uh, you know, was, was an ally, was supportive. But, you know, I was on high alert. And I've definitely had those moments in sport of being, uh, concerned a little bit for my safety in all honesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but largely, you know, I know that my experience is very, very different than any trans person of color and, and than any trans woman in the sport who faces so much more discrimination as well as, uh, I chose this. Right. And so like, I didn't have to come out publicly. I didn't have to talk to the New York times and have an article when I first came out. Like, you know, I, I made that decision because I wanted to fill the role of the person that I wish that I had seen when I was going through my process. Like it would have changed my life to see an out trans man competing with men in sports. It absolutely would have changed my life. So I know that I have the opportunity to, to be that person for my community now to create a pathway for a trans person to go to the Olympics, to create opportunities for trans kids to participate with their friends and not be harassed and to be able to fully show up as themselves. And so my goal is to to do that, and, and I'm fueled by that. I'm I'm not really, um, I don't think that I'm negatively impacted by that most days. Most days, okay. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> and uh, you just said, do you get a lot of trans kids reaching out to you now? Do you get like people asking you questions, that kind of thing? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that's the beauty of social media. I am extremely open on my social media. I talk to anybody who who writes me. Uh, who's a, who's a kid <laughs> I, there, I've had to use some filters now, but, um, but yeah, so it, trans kids, their parents, their grandparents, their family members contacting me to say that they have a trans family member or that they've been helped by my content in some way. And, and, you know, the kids like looking for either affirmation or inspiration to, to be able to fully show up as themselves. And yeah, that's been a, an amazing thing that's happened. And you and I were talking kind of before we started, but about a lot, there's been, I mean, they come in ways, but there's been a lot of concern recently, again, about typically trans girls, uh, you know, guy, this fear of guys coming into girls locker rooms and pretending to be girls like that is the, the fear, right? And so there's been more and more bills about like, we have to make sure high school girls are girls, which seems like it's suggesting they're going to look at girls genitalia, which would have been really weird. 
That's a, if that happened to me when I was in middle school, yeah, it would have been weird. Um, it's actually part of some of so, these bills. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm glad that yeah. you mentioned that. So in nearly half of the states in our country have now presented bills at the state level to try to ban trans kids from participating with their peers, and more specifically to ban transgender girls from participating with girls. You know, up to this point, every single state has a high school athletic association that creates the policies and the rules for the states in their in their or for the, for the sports in their state. And there's a patchwork of policies that exist. Some states have really great inclusive policies that don't make kids do things they didn't, they don't need to do. Some, some make them participate based on their birth certificate. There are some states that have more stringent requirements than the International Olympic Committee. And so there's a variety of states and there are states that don't have a policy at all. But right now, a 25, you know, uh, 25 states in the country approximately, um, it might have changed actually today, uh, have a bill on the table that would prevent trans kids from playing with their peers. And, and it is what you said, you know, it's this fear, it's this lack of understanding who trans people are, but it's also, um, it's conflating two different things, right? Trans girls are not boys pretending to be girls to gain access to or, uh, you know, accolades in sport. Every single sport, every single sport, every single state has a policy that prevents boys from playing with girls. That's not what we're talking about. This is about people's, you know, truth of who they are. Trans girls are girls and, they, and they're not pretending to be girls to try to win state high school championships. Like, I'll tell you, I've, no trans person would transition for athletic glory. You know, even the Olympic gold medals, it's just not happening. Like, the, what a trans person faces in the rest of their life. You know, all you have to do is is probably read the comments on this podcast right now, and you could see like that would be you know a good indication of of the way trans people are treated, and it, you know it's just not happening. So lawmakers are manufacturing a problem that simply does not exist, uh, and they're doing it under the framework of quote unquote protecting girls and protecting women in sports. So it's I mean, I, and it's offensive. I mean, I think it's offensive to to do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, to your point, yeah, I mean, no, there isn't anybody who's pretending to be a girl, uh, one, because of what you just, like, there's just, it's, they're going to get so much hate, so much, they wouldn't go through that, they wouldn't put them, like, a 12-year-old boy is not going to put himself through that just to win a cross-country race, right? Like, it's it's not no. happening. Um, And then the other half of what you're talking, like, what you and I were talking about is is kind of the executive order that came down uh, in the country, which was just to give trans kids access, which is kind of to your point you were talking about before about what it means to those kids to be able to compete in the sport that they identify with, right? Yeah. So this is a large national and international uh, concerted effort to ban trans people from existence. And like that might sound aggressive when I'm talking about high school sports, but let me lay it out for you. So as you mentioned, like genital inspections, there are multiple states in the country right now as part of their bills, they would require that any young athlete who's questioned about her gender identity. And and like, for context, when I was a young female athlete, I had a great jump shot in basketball and people would be like, is that a guy or a girl? You know, it didn't matter that I had a ponytail, that I had the same uniform as my peers, you know, that I, that I didn't identify as trans, like none of that mattered. That was just like, like how people would harass me. And it was based on mm -hmm. my performance in sports. And I know a lot of women in sports who have experienced some version of that. You no, know, you, oh, yeah. you couldn't have beat Definitely. the boys, you cheated, or like, you must be a man. And like, there's all of these uh, 
these odd quote unquote norms that we put on people of how they should look, how feminine an athlete needs to be in order to still be a girl, right? And so this is what is is potentially going to happen. Any young athlete could be questioned on whether or not she's actually a girl and then would have to undergo a genital inspection of her internal and external reproductive organs plus a chromosome test plus a hormone test in order to play girls sports. Now, like you said, could you imagine being a 14-year-old wanting to play volleyball with your friends after school and having to have somebody, an adult, look in your pants to see if you were actually a girl, quote unquote. Like, it's just ridiculous. And these are adult lawmakers who are introducing these bills. And it's not a one-off. I mean, there are, there are many that have that same exact wording. And so it's just really troubling that, that there are these attacks. And these attacks on sports are often paired with healthcare bills that would prevent trans young people from from receiving gender affirming care, which is recommended by every major medical association. Um, it's They're often paired with ID laws, which would prevent a trans person from changing their driver's license to match their authentic identity. You know, and, and if, if I can't, if I don't have a driver's license that matches who I am, it makes traveling incredibly hard. It makes getting a job incredibly difficult. You know, it, it, it complicates a lot of the rest of our lives. And so they, all of these are being funded and fueled by anti-trans hate groups, some of which focus on sports and prison reform and identification laws. You know, like these are, that's their area of interest. And so it's, it's really troubling to see uh, just how much this has come up in 2021. It's been the worst attacks we've ever seen on trans people legislatively. Yeah, it's been everywhere. And I think there are a couple issues that people are conflating, like you've mentioned, um, like we were just talking about kids and the vast majority of kids are never going to be Olympians, right? The vast majority of kids, like you're playing the sport because you learn lessons, because you get community, because you make friends, because you work hard, exercise, all that stuff. So like, that's like a whole, like one issue, like let's, and then the other half that people then start to conflate and, and wrap in is elite performance. And this concern that somehow particularly trans women are going to have an advantage. Um, and those definitely get conflated and I, and they're, they're separate issues. And, and the, the, the fairness one is obviously a little more complicated at an elite performance level. And I'm sure you've been involved in like lots of discussions around that. Yeah, absolutely. But there have been policies in place at the Olympic level. There have been policies in place at national mm-hmm. governing bodies that have rules of what trans folks need to do to participate uh, fairly with their peers. At the IOC level, the the policy has been in place since 2003. They've had access for trans athletes. And in that time, over 54,000 people have become Olympians and zero of them have been out as transgender. And so like if we're, you know, we're talking about the way that people are framing this up is that there's a real problem with dominance in sport, but like literally zero trans people have become Olympians. So, you know, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging to understand that argument when you know we've we've been right. able for nearly two decades to get there. Uh, national governing bodies, you know, we've seen that they each individually have their own rules as well. USA Triathlon recently rewrote their rules, uh, you know, to make sure that they're being inclusive and also to, to with respect to fairness. And so, you know, these are things that every organization is considering and and not taking lightly. And there are rules in place that are working right now. So these, you know, legislative attacks and and writing discrimination into law is extremely problematic. What rules do you think uh, 
work well in sports right now? I mean, I there are different models. I'm just curious. Yeah, and I think that's important to say, right? Like to your point, I think that we can't conflate high school athletics and kids just trying to move their body in gym class with elite performance and the Olympics, right? And so unfortunately, what makes this so incredibly complicated is that there's not one model policy that would work for all mm -hmm. sports or all levels of sport. And so even when you get into to certain national governing bodies that have like um, under 23 programs or youth programs that have um, recreational elites that have professional sports, those will often have multiple policies written within to address the different areas of competition. And so it, there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. And then it's also important to remember hmm. that there's not just one way to be a trans person. And that's also what makes it complicated is that not every trans person transitions medically. Not every trans person takes hormones or uh, has surgery or changes their gender marker or, you know, like it, it becomes really complicated when you're thinking about the rules for me at the Olympic level and at the world championships are different than the rules for a transgender woman. And so there are, mm -hmm. you know, multiple layers within policies uh, that makes it incredibly difficult to understand. Even, for, even as a trans person, it's a lot to, it's a lot to manage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are different levels that regulate, like we talked about earlier, test, like your testosterone. There's other places that are like, well, you had to have medically transitioned for at least a year. There's other places that just just self-identify rules. So it, it varies wildly. Um, and it's interesting you brought up that there's no one right way to be a trans person, because I do think a lot of people can get their head around the idea that, okay, you medically transitioned, you are a man. But the concept of not medically transitioning, I think a lot of people struggle with that. And that's where you get in that whole, well, he could just say he wants to be a woman. Um, and that's and it's like it, it's a little hard for, I think, a lot of people to kind of figure out, you know? Yeah, and it, that's so right. And I think part of that is because sport is so incredibly binary, right? So like our, our categories are men's and women's categories. And so it doesn't leave a lot of room for people who fall outside of that checkbox. And one of the things about being trans is like, you can be trans and non-binary. You can be, well, you can be non-binary and not be trans and not consider yourself transgender, but you know, you can not subscribe to the two little checkboxes that we've been told are our only two options in this world and in sports. And so for somebody who falls outside of that, like somebody, a trans person who I'm trans and I identify as a man. So I made a pretty binary transition, but I also kind of am comfortable a little bit along the spectrum, not <laughs> say not, I don't consider myself non-binary, but, um, you know, but I don't need to subscribe to the, the stereotypes of masculinity and of being a man that I was taught when I was a kid and, and that I've seen in the world. And so anytime that there's, that there's flexibility or people moving along a spectrum, it becomes incredibly challenging to assign them one of two buckets to compete in. Right. And so, what we're seeing now is that more and more uh, national governing bodies, sports organizations are starting to talk about non-binary athletes as well as part of this conversation. And like you said, you know, I think people struggle with the concept of transgender identity to, to layer on the fact that someone wouldn't be transitioning from one category to another makes it even more complicated for people to try to wrap their minds around. And part of that is just a lack of education and understanding about what trans and non-binary identities are, what it means, and you know, sort of like what it's like as a as a person who identifies or who 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 is trans or non-binary. 
Yeah, I mean, we had uh, Rach McBride uh, on before, who obviously identifies as non-binary, I think is the only pro uh, currently who does. And it's kind of one of those things where, but yeah, I have to pick a category to race professionally in. So yeah, otherwise you're going to be the only person in your category. Right. And, and that's like something that we often hear, you know, one of the comments that people will say when they're trying to be rude, <laughs> but, and not, I, I, I get when it's, when it's like a, a question that people are like, well, why not just this? Like that's, that's separate than the way that people often frame this up. But often I hear at, at some point in this conversation, people will say, well, you should just compete against your own. There should just be a trans only category. And the fact is like trans people are somewhere between like 0.6 and maybe like less than 2% of the population, right? And of that, the people who want to play sports right. is even smaller. And then the number of sports that we might play, the levels of play, like I, I couldn't go to a race and only compete against other trans people. Like it's, it, it would be like, I think logistically impossible to find competition. And so it, we know that separate is never equal. And so saying like, you should just go and be with your own people is definitely not a solution to the problem that people are trying to create in sports. Right, right. It would uh, it would be a very small field, very yes. small triathlon <laughs> field for sure. Yeah, yeah, right. So, what are your plans uh, right now? Kind of next. Um, obviously, you're doing a lot of advocacy work. I know that takes up a lot of time, but. Are you still race? Are you going to try and make the Olympics race walking? Are you back to triathlon? Is it all like duathlon now? And are you racing at an elite level or is this still like competitive age grouper trying to make Kona? Yeah. What, what so, are we doing? So my, uh, in the Olympic trials, I had to pull out, I tore my meniscus. So the last year has been recovery mm. from that. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat, I think, as many people being like, is racing even a thing anymore? <laughs> like, are we still doing this? Uh, so yeah. I'm excited when, when COVID is, <laughs> I, I don't know if COVID is ever done, but like when races get back on, uh, doing national championships, world champs, uh, this year and exploring race walking a little more, but I'm back to multi-sport right now. And, you know, it's, it's a matter of figuring out like, what is a reasonable, goal at this point. I've done sprint races. I've done Ironman races. I, I love, I love both parts of parts of both. And I think that's been part of the fun that I've had in my sort of like athletic career is kind of being all over the place and not specializing. It's just, I love the community of racing. I love the training of racing. Uh, racing is pretty okay, <laughs> but, but I, I really love, like, there's just so much positive that comes out of, of sport and of being with ad other athletes, uh, of meeting people that I would never have met before and talked to outside of my, outside of sport that I become close friends with because sport has brought us together. And so as many right. of those opportunities as I have, that's what I'm about right now. Okay, so so we haven't we don't have like goals yet. We're all like still waiting to see what's happening a, with COVID. I have a couple of races on the schedule for this year. We'll see if they actually happen. And race walking is a a future thing uh, potentially. But I, you know, I, like I was so mad when I race walked and and tore my meniscus of like you know a a decade in triathlon and running I mean, all the team sports that I ever played. I never suffered an injury like that. And then you know like three weeks into walking, I blow my knee out or something like that. So how, like, how does that happen? How do you blow your meniscus out race walking? I don't like, I don't even, I can't even picture. Yeah. Happening. I think part of it might be that straight leg situation. Landing with the straight uh, leg is, uh, I don't know. It, it wasn't a very intuitive, um, 
an intuitive movement for my body. <laughs> right, right. All right. So here's my last question for you. Out of all of the things you've done, what is your favorite sport? Ooh. Uh, favorite thing. Favorite sport. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I almost said badminton or pickleball, but like, <laughs> like I think those are fantastic. Um, and that's a future for me potentially. But I think of all the multi-sport, duathlon has really, I've just fallen deeply in love with duathlon and, and more than that, okay. uh, draft legal duathlon. And so, really, yeah. And I just, I, I never raced bikes, you know, I never did like drafting races, cycling crits or anything like that. Um, I always had a desire to, and then I just kind of had that fear factor as well of, of doing that. And specifically living in New York city, I just like it being in central park seemed like a crit sometimes. Like I just right, <laughs> wasn't right. quite sure. Um, but I think, you know, playing to my own strengths, I'm not a strong swimmer and I had a lot of complicated feelings and emotions around swimming. So running, you know, run, bike, run was like a very reasonable solution for me. And that's something that, you know, I, I, found that I excelled in, in terms of what, uh, what my body can do. And so that's really my, my favorite multi-sport right now. Are there that many draft legal duathlons? There's not that many. No, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> and I think that's what probably what also makes it super exciting is like, um, it, it really is after doing many races that were not draft legal and you are intentionally not drafting, <laughs> like right. very conscious of that to have the opportunity to get that, that free speed and to work with the pack. And like, it, 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 it makes multi-sport more of a team sport. And I think there's huh. something that's really exciting about that of feeding off the energy of other people. And, um, you know, maybe having a little bit faster bike leg than you would have alone. <laughs> right, right. Something very, very exciting about that. So I'm excited for when those races come back. USA triathlon has put on more of them and they, they often come in championship forms, but like, I know that there are other races that are picking it up. And, uh, you know, as you look at the international circuit, that's become one of the most mm -hmm. exciting things is, is these little super sprints and the group super sprints and things like that. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't tried draft legal, try take a bike clinic and then give it a shot. <laughs> yes, take a bike clinic first. So we were we were actually just looking because of the Olympics this year at like places that age groupers could do draft legal races, mixed relay races, like how to get more people into this. So yeah. it would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. And hopefully we see you at races. Hopefully we have races this year and we see you at races. I agree. Well, I'll be out there if we do. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks to Chris for the insightful chat and to all of you for sticking with us through our technical difficulties. Be sure to share with friends and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Spotify. Keep listening and keep training.